Well, 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 welcome to the mayhem Dick and Lloyd mayhem Media mayhem Marketing mayhem You might love it, you might hate it Here's my favorite freaking show Hey, welcome. It's another big show here with Dick Wilson and Loy Edge. What's coming up on this show? Cool guest, I think. One of the best writers I've I've ever met, and he's right here in Kansas City. His name is Jack Cashel. A lot of people are familiar with Jack from his work in advertising and marketing and on the radio. Wow. He's an author of several books. That's uh, a lot of really impactful uh, journalism in his work and he's also the editor of Kansas Sentinel which is an online publication and the executive editor of Ingram's a lot of stories to tell, I'm sure. Did you see, speaking of stories, did you see the other day the folks that live down at the Western Auto Condominiums down there on Grand have come up with enough money to repair the big Western Auto sign up on top of the building there? That's quite a Kansas City showpiece. Neat little area. You had a, way back, didn't, wasn't there a story that you had about that Western Auto building, something with a daredevil? Well, it was, and the sign that's up on top that they're going to fix. Yeah. Matter of fact, I have a daredevil. His name is Rock Rupture, and I uh, believe he was going to try to do some sort of big feat down there around that building. I thought so. Yeah, let's check it. Well, good morning, Dick. This is Rock Rupture, Kansas City's foremost stuntman. I'm coming to you live, hanging from a rope from a small plane that's flying 800 feet above Grand Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri. We're going for another death-defying stunt this morning. My assistant is flying the plane. He's up in the cockpit. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, Mr. Rupture. I've got you loud and clear. And the uh, the, uh, the Molly trolley is down there on Grand, too. Okay, now that's exactly what we're going to be doing. I'm going to drop from this rope and land like a cat on top of the molly trolley that is uh, synchronized with us in a route along Grand Avenue below. So we're going to be getting ready here pretty soon. Yeah, uh, Rock, uh, just, uh, you ever seen how pretty that AT&T building is downtown? That's, that's really, I can see it up here real good in this plane, yeah. It's, uh, to speed up a little bit. let me just bang over to the right a little bit here, and I can get a better look at that, I think, that building downtown. The trolley's there. looking good below. I'm getting ready. Well, wait, you might want to look at that uh, wow, that's a really Western Auto sign over there to the right. building down there. It's okay, so beautiful. I think if I bank a little more to the right here, I'll be able to thing, see that. Western uh, Auto sign's coming up pretty just, close. Let me just gonna... bank it over here a little more and see if we can... I think it's the Western Auto sign! Flew up here by the plane. That was beautiful. I wonder what was it. Rock, rock, are you there? Rock, are rock, are you all right? Uh, you, you might want to cancel my tanning session later today. Can you airdrop me some solar cane? Ah, uh, sure, Rock. Yeah, gosh, you know, some smell in the air makes me hungry for a burnt-in sandwich down at Bryant's. <laughs> All right, let's get down to the Cigar Club on the plaza and meet our guest. Dick, we've got Jack Cashel with us today. He is really an unbelievably influential guy. He's he's here in Kansas City. He's probably 
way better known uh, around the globe in particular circles than he is, uh, you know, on a mass level. But he really is, I think, a, a fantastic writer. He's an author of many books. He's an old-fashioned, muddy boots guy. He really gets down and gets the truth. He's written on written books on things like contemporary politics and finance. And he's also a blogger and a documentary producer. He's been all over the marketing and media world. People in Kansas City would probably recognize that he's the uh, executive editor of Ingram's. He has a column there, which is where I discovered him a long time ago. And he's also showing up all the time on World Net Daily and The Thinker and other sites. As we're going to learn, he's also the king of C-SPAN. And uh, Jack, thanks so much for joining us here in the Cigar Lounge. Well, that's good. Well, that's all the time we have, Jack. Thanks <laughs> well, thank for being you. with us. Uh, no. <laughs> but he's, he's somewhere in the center of this marketing and media mayhem. Boy, he sure of is. which yeah. we yeah. often speak. Jack Cashel. Hi, Jack. Hey, how you doing, guys? And it's, you know, it's... Uh, did I miss anything? Did I forget anything? How would you describe Jack Cashel? I, I describe myself as an independent writer and producer. Okay. That and was so you know, much better than what I did. That's why you yeah. a, little, a little more uh, make condensed. Make the big bucks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, and journalism today is not, it's not a, no longer an identity. It's really a, an act. You know, so anyone could be a journalist and the means are there for anyone to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. As much as I despise Google, <laughs> they transformed my career. Yeah. I mean, it made it possible for someone sitting at home, actually I keep a little office, but sitting here in an office in Westport in Kansas City to compete with the New York Times. Because I know as much as they do now. Okay. I have more information at my and disposal how? that that entire newsroom did 20 years ago. Oh yeah, sure. And uh, they are constrained by uh, editors, publishers, advertisers, wives, husbands. Right, you know, uh, drinks at accountants. lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Uh, wow. Your wife does not constrain you. She does a little bit, uh, in the sense of she's a lovely woman. I've met her. I know she lets you do. She lets you be Jack. She worries a little bit about some of the <laughs> stuff I do. But, you know. So, what's the foundation of of where you come from? I would say, you know, and, and part of it is that you know, my father was a police detective. He was a cop okay. in Newark, New Jersey, where I grew up. In uh, Newark was a, a lab, like an education. Anyone who grew up there when I grew up there has a worldview that will not be, mm -hmm. well, can only be confirmed, that can't be revised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and since uh, my mother and then my wife would, were horrified when I thought about joining the, following my father's footsteps, I had to, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, create a career for myself. And I'm just I'm going to lay it on you exactly why I, I have a PhD in American Studies from Purdue. And why I'm not an academic is attributable to one experience in an elevator. I was really? at a hiring convention, the Modern Language Association, when I was finishing my PhD. And uh, this is, uh, and by the time I got to the lobby from this reception upstairs, I knew that I had to leave the academia. There were two people, other people on the, on the elevator with me. One was a black guy from some, you know, medium university like Purdue. And a, a woman from a comparable, you know, you can see from their name tags. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about their um, interviews that they had lined up. Uh, she had eight. He had 14. I and all the males in my department together had zero. <laughs> and that's the, the state of the academic world circa late 1970s. No. So it hasn't changed that much to today. And then I realized I can't stay in a profession that would so disrespect me. 
and that I had to find a, a city big enough to support me. Fortunately, I was married to a woman that, you know, had I been gay at the time, I'd have been doubly screwed. Yeah. But, and I, she was employable. You know, she was also finishing her PhD. And I said, find, let's find the city that I, that I could make a living in. I don't want to be driving a cab in a Champaign-Urbana or something, you know, 20 years from now. So that's how we settled on Kansas City. I'll be darned. And the city's been just big enough to uh, afford me a living. And uh, the beauty of it is that came along at a time when the media were uh, dramatically decentralizing so that you didn't need... Uh, you know, like a specific education in something to jump into something. Mm-hmm. And, and included talk radio, which was, you know. So are, are you saying you didn't have to know anything to write something? Yeah, I'm saying that you didn't need a, a diploma yeah. saying uh, I was a journalist. Sure. Journalism school is yeah. a waste of time. Yeah. Um, I've now, spoken. Did you start as in advertising or as a journalist? No, when I came, actually, when I first came to Kansas City, I went to work for the Housing Authority of Kansas City because oh. I needed a job. Mm-hmm. And that job offered a car, and we only had one car, so I took it. You know, I did work there four years, and I started writing as a way of achieving escape velocity because mm-hmm. I didn't want to end up in that world, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so then I started developing a portfolio, and then I started getting you know freelance writing gigs, including places like Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Fortune. Uh, but that was freelance. You can't. Was, I was. You can't make a living at that. You know, really. Uh, and then I decided I had to, I needed a profession. And I saw an ad for, for a copywriter and I knew I could do it. And I went in and it was a very teeny agency and the guy said, how much do you want? I said, I don't care what you pay me today, but two years from now when you realize I'm the best advertising copywriter in Kansas City, you pay me what I'm worth. <laughs> and yeah, I tripled my salary in the first two years. Wow, okay. And I we remember went from those days. I, I told people there is a guy Named Jack Cashel, I think he's the best writer I've seen. Yeah, and they looked at me like, "Who? Do you, no way!" I said, "Yeah, he is." <laughs> and you you had that POV that you have now, way back then, yeah. and it shone through in everything that you did. It really did. Right, and and the nice thing about advertising, unlike academia, it was really merit centered. Mm-hmm. If you could do it, you could do it. You know, and in fact, when I was a creative director in ad agent, at this ad agency, and Can I was, you mention who it was? It was John Life Limited, and, okay. and we hit this healthcare niche at the time, mm-hmm. and we just exploded, mm-hmm. which is why partly why we did so well. But I was, it was my job to hire copywriters, and to the point of uh, of background, people would come in with the resumes, and immediately after a week, I said, you know, I, the resume was meaningless in this field, and it told me nothing about a person's competence. Uh, advertising copywriting looks easy. Everyone thinks they can do it, but it's much harder than it looks for some reason. There's more than just the headline. Right. And even headlines defy a lot of people, and, and especially academics who are used to, you know, long-winded kind of, you know, stuff. And So then uh, I, um, then people, then I look at their book, you know, their book of ads that they had created, and that didn't tell me enough either because I didn't know who helped them. I didn't know how long it took. Exactly. I don't know how much you know, support they had. So I started giving tests. Here's a marketing problem. Here's an hour. Here's a room. Solve it, right? Wow. And, uh, and I get some beautiful answers going in. Like uh, one, one woman saying to me, you know, uh, I'm good, but I'm not fast. I said, honey, in this business, if you're not fast, you're not good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then another guy saying, I don't work well under pressure. I said, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know? 
This is all pressure. What's all the, the pay for this? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what I liked about advertising. You know, it was it was pure meritocracy, and there was, and I no one ever asked you what your you know. Oh, it was the wild wild were. west, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And it was happily before the sexual harassment codes were in. <laughs> I worked for places that were, that were outrageous. I've worked for other places that were very chaste, like John yeah. Leifer. Yeah. I mean, a very uh, proper place, but I won't, I won't mention names. I worked for the big agencies where you anything were there, went. Oh my God. You were there right at the, as was I, right at the tail end of what people perceive as being the madmen. Yes, you're exactly era. right. Because mm-hmm. it was. Uh, I, the one agency, the one biggest agency I worked with, I'm not going to mention names here, but it was a madman agency, mm-hmm. right? But that era was ending. Yes. Uh, and um, The old guys with, who grew their sideburns out <laughs> were still there, but they were on their way out. Right, and who spent their lunch times doing two things. One of them was drinking, the other thing we're not going to talk about here. <laughs> uh, that, wow. Yeah, because then, then we're into the Diet Coke era, you know? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Wow. Much more sober. What do you tell uh, journalists in college now? What, what tips do you have for them working in today's world or trying to work in today's world? You know, I, uh, I would tell them don't, don't even bother with journalism school. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I've talked, I, you know I've, I've talked to journalism schools where they also have marketing classes and advertising classes. And, you know, I was offered a job at the University of Illinois because uh, I was one of the few PhDs who was also creative director. Mm-hmm. And this was a high-end job, best advertising department in the country. It was a joke. It was a trick yep. on students, you know? Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, uh, they took me out there for two days. They wined and dined me. It was really kind of fun because when I was coming out of graduate school, otherwise, I was, they wouldn't have even answered my letters, you know? <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, everything I could, knew I could share in an afternoon. About advertising, literally. Yeah, yeah. So why are you taking a class or a course, let alone a major in it? You know. <laughs> I would just say to to young people is that start writing. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Uh, and and part of what I I describe myself as doing is chronicling the obvious. There are major stories out there that are just sitting on a table because the major media do not want to talk about them. Mm-hmm. You know. And if you want a niche, you want to find something that no one's talking about and start writing about it. And make it your own. It's one way to do it. Way to get a foot in the door. Yeah. You know, Jack, yeah. you've done. You had some amazing examples of that in your own life, and they, they've been published by major publishers. Yeah. Talk about some of those books that you've written. You are a in in many circles, not the mainstream, but in many circles, you are one of the best known uh, authors. I think. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting because some of the stories that I've t- picked up, I've become the literary custodian of several major stories. Mm-hmm. A few of them I inherited. You know, the work, the groundwork has been done by other people. I'll just talk about one that I discovered. Okay. And because it's a really eye-opening experience. I could write a book about it. In fact, I did write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened was that in, you know, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of ghost writing also. So I know that art. You know, I know how it works. And I was in the summer of 2008. I hadn't been, oddly, I hadn't been paying much attention to the upcoming election. Yeah. And I hadn't, uh, I thought that Hillary would be the nominee, so I didn't pay any attention to Obama. Uh, and then I finally picked up a copy of Dreams from My Father in a Detroit airport, actually. And they were so happy to sell it to me. They were, they're so euphoric. Mm-hmm. It was like <laughs> Obama-Rama bookstore, you know, coloring <laughs> books and books about Michelle. And, yeah. and uh, I started reading the book, and I'm about a, about a third in. I said, 
I wonder who wrote this. And I knew it wasn't Obama. I'd seen enough of his writing okay. and speaking to know that this was a great above, you yeah, know? Yeah. The good ghostwriter writes in the voice of the person he's writing about or for. So when I do it, I try not to call attention to the language, right? Because the language, you tell the story, you, do, you keep the language, though, at a level where when someone picks it up, they say, yeah, he could write that. That's not, you know. Sure, yeah. But in this case, it was, it was overwritten. It was too well written, at least in stretches. Some stretches were pretty banal and, and pointless. But uh, so then I just started Googling around. I said, who? I wonder who, you know, I said, Googled Obama ghostwriter to see what I got. And what I got was this. Unlike John McCain, Barack Obama does not need a ghostwriter, you know? Okay. Barack Obama is a literary genius. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's the, the best writer since Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that's, you know, really, this is what you got. No one expressed any skepticism, you know? And then uh, I let it sit for a while uh, and didn't, didn't pick it up because I got th- distracted with other things. Yeah. And then in September of that year, September 2008, I, uh, on another track altogether, I started reading Bill Ayers' uh, memoir, Fugitive Days. Bill Ayers is, you know, the uh, weather, weather terror, mm-hmm. terrorist emeritus okay. of the yeah. Chicago literary scene. And then I said, my gosh, I wonder if they have the same ghostwriter because it sounded like the same voice. And then as I got into, I read more and more of Ayers' stuff and his background. I didn't know much about him. Uh, I realized that he was this very skilled writer and editor. And he helped young writers in Hyde Park with their projects, okay. right? Okay, all right. And then I started, uh, I started, I wrote my first article about this in September of 2008, and then I realized that there were people all around the world thinking the same thing. And I started, I became the, the funnel for that information. Okay, yeah. And uh, I started, you know, I got a ton of good stuff, and, I, and on October, uh, maybe October 6th, I think it was, plus the world was falling apart at that time, you know, all, <laughs> you know, the collapse of the yeah, economy and all sure. that. So it was a very harrowing period. I finally, uh, I couldn't get a major publication or let alone a major conservative publication to even ask this question that I, that I was, I, by this time, amassed a lot of evidence, you know, literary, you know forensic, literary forensics. And so uh, I wrote, an, I got an American thinker. I said, I need at least 3,500 words to make my case. It's, it's a big story. You can't do it in a you know, your typical now, American Thinker is a online publication. Online mm-hmm. publication. Yeah. And they, they agreed to let me do it. And then uh, Rush Limbaugh picked it up. And he started talking about it. And then, you know, your life kind of changes when that happens. <laughs> but what did not happen was this, is that uh, I had made a very powerful case that uh, Barack Obama had significant help from Bill Ayers on his uh, genius memoir, Dream from My Father. Okay. There was no denying my evidence. And I did not expect the major media to, to, to intervene. But I had one month where I didn't know I could have affected the outcome of the 2008 election. Well, sure, yeah. If someone had picked it up. Yeah. And this is the discouraging and interesting part is that the conservative media, you know, the National Review, New, you know, the Fox, Washington Times, were as afraid of it as anyone else was. Really? Did not yeah. want to know or hear about this. Yeah. And the story died. I mean, so the election came and went, and, um, and that was that. And then a year later, you know, it's like you wake up on Christmas morning and you find a pony in your tree. You're not expecting it. Christopher Anderson, his celebrity biographer, writes a book called Barack and Michelle, The Untold, uh, the Untold Story. It's a very positive book about their marriage. 
And he, he dedicated six pages to the fact that Bill Ayers wrote the book. <laughs> he had his own sources in Hyde Park, you know. And he's like a celebrity biographer. He's written 10 New York Times bestsellers. You know, he's like Andrew Morton or one of those guys, you know. Wow. And um, then I read all the reviews of his book. Everyone reviewed his book. Mm -hmm. mm. I've read through 80 reviews. Not one single one mentioned the most really? newsworthy <laughs> element in his book. So what you wrote just became de facto fact. Right. And <laughs> yet, it was. And yet, uh, and that, this is what, what makes journalism so interesting today is because there's a large part of the world that simply doesn't want to hear what you know. You That's know? right. Yeah, sure. I mean, they, no I one believe. wanted to know. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I did, I did a book. I got a book, a contract with, uh, I believe it was Simon & Schuster. I did Deconstructing Obama, which I told this whole story. And by that time, I had a ton more good evidence, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it was, it's undeniable. Wow. And yet, this is the, the irony and the paradox of journalism today is you can have major stories and nine-tenths of the world that doesn't know and doesn't want to know. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, right. I and thought it was fascinating that you, you, I mean, it was a very mathematical, uh, very specific formula that you put the word counts yeah. and the sentence structure. I remember hearing an interview where you talked about um, the nautical references. Oh, yeah. right. And it's like Obama never lived in a... In a <laughs> Seaside, but only these obscure nautical terms that are. But yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that was a fascinating thing, and you did several other books on that that had a, a similar story uh, on the flight. Yeah, the DWA flight eight hundred. But just as on the nautical references, Bill Ayers had been a merchant seaman when he was right out of high school or college, okay. and, and it was a very uh, traumatic experience for him. You know, because being out on you know, it's not. Yeah. You know, it was for an 18 or 19-year-old. Yeah, sure. And he continued to have nightmares about it. But he wrote about it. The nautical metaphors infected everything he wrote. And I, between Dreams from My Father and the Ares books, I found 53 identical nautical metaphors. <laughs> you know, the whole vast panorama, little islets. Of, and, you know, some of them are really, uh, you know, distinctive. You know, not like just <laughs> waves of this or that, but uh, gulfs, oceans, fog, you know, ships. I mean... Uh, all metaphorically used, not, yeah, you know. Right. No, even though Obama wrote it, grew up in Hawaii, he had no nautical experience. Yeah. He didn't, you know, he may have went body surfing once or twice. <laughs> that. So the same time you're doing this, you are uh, selling soap. I am. Okay. Yeah, right. it was my transitional period, right? Because I had to make a living, you know. Oh, okay. And so, you can always make a better living doing advertising. You can't do it freelance. Yeah. All right, we'll be back with more Jack Cashel and great stories. Boy, he's done some ghost writing and things that may surprise you, hasn't he, Lloyd? Yeah, he's he's done lots of things that'll surprise you. We'll hear about it. You want to head down the hall a little bit, have a little break, get a little drink? Yeah, I'm All ready. Right, let's get down there. Okay. I could use a drink. Oh, he he's here again, Frank. Oh, Frank. Hey, Frank. Yeah. Oh, look who's here. Great. Hey, Poindexter, <laughs> oh, give me a Jack Daniels, would you? All right. Make yourself useful. Let me get you some. All right, I'm going to do a little song here about uh, for all those losers out there thinking about dating on Facebook. Yeah, all right, boys, hit it. It used to be innocent, all friendly and stuff. Keep in touch with your old pals And that was enough Now Facebook is going To a place that could get rough 
Now it's time to be a Facebook tramp. Zuckerberg says Facebook should be your new dating site. Flirting on your friends list just doesn't seem right. Like going to a funeral in a red dress that is tight. But you're gonna be a Facebook tramp. You've seen his car, house, Rolex, motorcycle, and yacht. Ah, what a life he's got. Forgot to mention, he's in detention. Breaking those rocks down in a Georgia prison camp. You met another Facebook tramp. She was a high school sweetheart with a little tat right here. She said she's divorced now, wants to meet you for a beer. That's when you find out now she looks just like Roosevelt Greer. Careful when those selfies in the mirror ain't too clear. He looks so continental, and he said he's from France. You said you would meet him, said, hey, let's take a chance. And he sent you a selfie in a black beret sans pants. You met another Facebook tramp. If you're gonna friend, like, smiley face, thumbs up, poke and share. <laughs> Don't do it there. Don't listen to Zuck. He's a schmuck. If he didn't have billions, you wouldn't give him a glance. That is why Facebook, that's why Facebook, Facebook ain't the place to find romance. Oh, oh, man. Oh, man, what a, what a song. Very good. Oh, is that all that stuff true? Love That's it. phenomenal. Well, Lloyd, you know, with a little warmer weather out now, there's a lot of garage sales out there. Do you ever go to garage sales? I've seen a lot of garage sales. You know, they're popping up everywhere, and that means it's probably a good thing for one of our initial sponsors here on the show, Garage Sales Are Us. Oh, those guys are great. Now available in the Kansas City area, Garage Sales RS, an agency dedicated to giving you maximum return on your junk. Know why you can't make money at your garage sale? Because you're selling stuff out of your crummy house, in your crummy garage, in your crummy neighborhood, to your crummy neighbors. Garage Sales RS will move your trash to the luxurious home of your dreams, right in the middle of Mission Hills. Watch your stuff sell for a top dollar and be carried away in Jeep Cherokees. Jeep Cherokee, the official car of Overland Park. Here's why you don't make big bucks at your garage sale. Because you're a spineless, sniveling wimp when it comes to dickering. 
Choose from the garage sales arrest staff who will handle your haggling. A quarter? Don't you realize I came across on the boat with my great-grandfather? If I wanted a quarter, I would have put a quarter on it. It's worth five bucks. We made over an underclosed amount at our garage sale. Garage sale are us. It worked for me and it'll work for you. Guaranteed. Garage sales are us. Where our motto is, it ain't cheap if you charge enough. Oops, broke my landing gear. Hey, let's head back down to the Cigar Club and check in with our guest, Jack Cashel. What's going on now in the uh, in the book world? What what's happening? What what have you been? Uh, I want to get into the ghostwriting thing because I know there are fascinating stories there, and some of the people that you've written for. Right, uh, and and a lot of it I really can't talk about, but I will talk right now about a project I'm just launching, mm-hmm. which would be a, a ghostwritten book with someone who is. Uh, I can't. I I could tell you off the air, but I can't really say mm-hmm. anything. Sure. Someone who is nationally known, okay, and uh, considered a total pariah, you know, mm-hmm. who shouldn't be. In fact, a lot of the people I write about are people who were turned into pariahs unfairly, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, even locally. Dick Wilson. Boy, Edge. Boy, Edge. Yeah. Anyhow, so. Uh. Uh, but I would say, speaking of pariahs, I'll tell you one one ghostwriting book that I wrote about. Because uh, I'll talk because he has much greater problems than than what I'm going to say. Okay, All right. and that's Bill Cosby. Okay, and about ten years or so ago, I, I wrote his book, uh, "Come on, People." Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> come, on, come on, come on, people. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, put the comma in the right place. Here. Hang on. Uh oh, Cosby just Uh-oh. called. That's <laughs> his yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Come, come on, come on, people. Yeah, Jack. I don't think he even read the book. I mean, uh, I, you know, I never talked to him. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't. He didn't write anything. I, you know, I went through his, uh, his secretary was the one who was the intermediary. Yeah. Okay. And she was total pain. She was real PC. You know, feminist. And, <laughs> But uh, and the uh, you know and yet he got an hour on Meet the Press and an hour on Oprah you know yeah there you go okay. and he sold a couple hundred thousand copies that's more than I've ever sold be so. well you've been on C-SPAN many times I've, I've done seen ten, you. ten uh, book TVs on C-SPAN mm-hmm. which may I don't know anyone who's done more you know so for ten different books so the king of C-SPAN wow. <laughs> see this is just another thing about Jack Cashel in Kansas City that nobody knows that's He's nobody knows yeah. yeah. Can you can you live off of book writing? Yes, if you're James Patterson. Okay, <laughs> if but if you're uh, Jack Cashel. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, okay. I can. I mean, it's, yeah. and here's why, because um, of the internet. Okay. You know, it used to, I, I could, it, for the books I've been writing, it would have taken years to do, now I can do them in three months. Mm-hmm. So I can make enough in three months. Let's say you get, let's just say, uh, for instance, this is not atypical, you get a $50,000 advance, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. If that's a three-month job, that's fine. That's good, yeah. If it's a two-year job, it's not so fun, mm-hmm. you know? Sure, yeah. Okay, Jack, how many books have you had published? Uh-huh. And then for everybody who's thinking about, you know, I, I love what you write, and I, I'd like to understand what that's like to follow up on Dick's question about making a living. How much do you crank out? How, how do you work? Do you get up in the morning and do X number of pages, or what do you do? I like to get up early, especially in the spring and summer, and you know when it's not too cold and nasty. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm if I really have a book project I'm cranking on, and it's the summer and I wake up at five o'clock, I'm up. 
And I, I go away for a lot of the summer. I have a place in New York State. The beauty is today you can be any place you want. Sure, yeah. So I'll, I may write from 5 to 9 and then go for a walk and have breakfast, you know. And uh, then in the afternoon I'll just, you know, dabble. But that's for me, that's the best time to write is early in the morning. So you dedicate part of your morning, or most of your morning, to writing these book projects. Right. And then is there a point of the day you put on the gray, uh, gray final suit and uh, No, there's, there's a point in the day, though, where you, where you start doing your, my, the daily stuff, the Ingram stuff, the other, the Sentinel stuff I have to do. I don't really, I haven't done any ad, advertising writing in quite a while, but. So uh, now it's all the Sentinel. You're the editor of yeah. the Sentinel of Kansas. Is that what Sentinel, it is? Sentinel. It's called the Sentinel. Sentinel. SentinelKSMO.org. It's an online uh, news service. Okay. I've, I'm a co-editor. I have a, a, a you know, Denidri Herbert is my co-editor. It's great. Very good. Yeah. Very good editor. Yeah. And then. And then I'm executive then editor. Executive that's, editor. Now that's down to a. It's a column, right? Yeah, it's maybe 12 hours a month. You know, and I bill by the hour, and I bill my advertising rate. So I, it's a good paying I've been doing it for 20 years it's a very good pay, well paying mm -hmm. then I used to do a lot more hours it was like enough to make a living on that's when I first really figured out who Jack Cashel oh. was was that column and, and uh, it's been consistently good for how many years well I've done it for 20 years under the current ownership and yeah probably 10 years with different ownerships but I got continued I, you're getting I, it down I would get fired periodically by the new ownership <laughs> Now you've done, uh, of course, you did a radio sh a show years ago, as we said, with. That's where I first met Dick, in fact. And, uh, yeah, over yeah, at Intercom. We were, we were still drinking out of the same coffee machine, you know, <laughs> someplace. How do you compare what you did on radio with what you do when you write? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, radio is very immediate and spontaneous, and you know this. And mm -hmm. I would say the difference is that talk radio. This is kind of interesting. Poodle Talk Radio is different from Sports Talk Radio. And mm -hmm, I, sure. When I listen to both. Because, mm -hmm. you know, with Sports Talk Radio, you really have to know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have to read stuff. You <laughs> really have to know. I mean, I was always amazed when I listened to any sports guy. I always thought I knew sports pretty well, but yeah. I didn't know sports one-tenth as well as I needed to to do a sports talk show. Yeah. Political talk show, you don't really need to know much. You know, so. <laughs> and there's a lot of people out there doing it who don't. And... To do it very well, you've got to float thought bubbles and let people respond to them. Right, you just yeah. Yeah, throw mm -hmm. out some, today's question yeah. is, you know, should yeah. you know, lesbians be allowed to, you know, own bicycles? I don't Whatever, know. Whatever, yeah. Right. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. <laughs> when you did, you did a lot of fill-in. Yeah. You have done a lot of fill-in in radio, right. which I think you're great at. And you did that show with, with Steve, right? Yeah. Glorioso. Oh, right, Friendly Fire. And that yeah. was a deal where every day you just tossed around a different political football and right. and, and it see, it always seemed to me Jack that you were really in earnest trying to get to the truth and that Steve wanted to make it into an all-star wrestling match. Well, you know, cuz Steve knew where he was. He was on my home court. It was okay. KMBZ. You know, we led into Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, sure. So, uh, and he knew that. He was mischievous. He like he reminded me of, like mm -hmm. Froggy in the Andy Devine show, you yeah, know, like yeah. Puck your magic swinger, Froggy, you know. Whereas his the woman who took his place, Mary O'Halloran, when Steve left, uh, Mary. That's what I'm just trying to think. Yeah, it was Mary. Yeah, that was in there with him. She uh, yeah. did not understand where we were. Yeah, she thought it was her audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and and she would get beat up every day. Where Steve was like uh, ducking and dodging and yeah. having fun. Yeah, Mary was just like getting hammered. You know. And so, <laughs> uh, anyhow. you're right. He was mischievous. That that yeah. was that's what he was. He was. Uh, Always just impish, impish, playing that game, and he always has. You know, in fact, when he died last year, 
I wrote an editorial, uh, you know, for the Sentinel about him after reading the editorial mm -hmm. for the Star. And I said, here's what the Star didn't talk about. Is that the things Steve was proudest of were his dirty tricks. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are the things he'd brag about. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I know what many of them were. And I, you know, I didn't you know, want to go, I won't go into them. Right That's now. funny because we talked to Pat O'Neill about all those things, and Pat said that he was basically the altar boy yeah. in that field. Yeah, right. And that the guys like Steve and Pat Gray were, right. were just, it was a point of pride. Total pride, right, yeah. <laughs> and that. And, you know, whether things were true or not were, you know, oh, yeah, sure, secondary yeah. to whether they yeah. worked or not, you know. <laughs> but... Um, you know what I liked about it, and you probably appreciate this, is, is there were commercials, you know? Yes, uh-huh. Because when I'd fill in, say, for Chris DeGaulle, and it's four hours, I didn't prepare. Yeah. Sure, I'd be there at 5 o'clock in the morning. What am I going to do, prepare before? I yeah, sure, there? yeah. But people say, how do you do that? I said, because every six minutes, I get five minutes. You know? <laughs> I get on the internet, I find something to talk about. Find something else to talk about, sure. Stegall was. Did you ever work with him on the air? Did you ever? You know, I was I was a guest several times, but uh, he was very good at what he did. I thought he was quite a, a good host. Yes, yes, he was very good. That's why I guess he's in Philly, and now. he's doing very well in Philadelphia. Yeah, and he fills in for some national shows periodically. And, uh, do you yeah, do was, that now? What's that? Are you filling in for national shows? No, no, I, I don't. I haven't done that really. Um, well, you should. I mean, I should, but that's, get on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll probably get thrown off quickly. You know, I don't have to know what your limits are. So. Well, what else do we need to know about Jack that we haven't talked about today? Is there anything else going on that uh, you'd like to confess here or <laughs> talk about? Or No, I, I would say that um, just in general, and, and I, I would say this especially to people who are interested in getting into the media, yeah. is that they have to understand that there are a whole lot of people who don't want to know what you know. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the trick is to find a way to tell it to them uh, that's that's palatable. So for what I write for Ingrams, for instance, is 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 screened differently than what I write for the Sentinel. Sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. And what I write for the Sentinel is screened differently than what I write for, say, World Net Daily or something. You know? Okay. All right. Which is like unscreened. You know. Whereas the you know if you have a business audience uh, like for Ingrams, and you know maybe two thirds of them generally agree with you, but you don't you can't insult or offend the other third. I mean, this goes for Facebook as well. If you're just communicating mm -hmm. on you know, sure. social media, yeah. Yeah. you should always keep your audience in mind and not... You're, my, my job, my goal is to make converts, not to make enemies. And that is my, I would say, my overriding philosophy when I'm writing, you know, nonfiction. I'm also writing a novel now, though, too, which I'm... Oh, are you really? Yeah, about a week Fictional? away from finishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any hint on uh, the story? Yeah, and because there's a funny story that gets into it here, but <laughs> a couple of years ago, Friend of mine and I were driving. We were going to a retreat. It was about a two or three hour drive, and uh, he said, "You know, uh, I'm kind of working on a novel. I'd like you to to take a look at." And I said, oh, "Tell me what it's about. We got a couple hours. We could talk it through here. You know, before I sit down mm -hmm. and read his novel. You know, if, yeah. a lot of times I, have, I people send me books and stuff. You know, and, yeah. and you know, you try to usually you can tell within a paragraph. You know, mm -hmm. whether this thing has any any future. But he said, "Yeah, it's a, it's a novel. It's about." Um, a guy who's into concealed carry, you know, and he's a gun guy, and he's out walking his dog one night, and he runs into a, a Martian. And I said, stop! <laughs> I've heard enough! <laughs> this is no future, you know? There's no future to this at all, you know? 
So the, my friend is uh, he's a really good guy, and he's got a couple of adolescent sons. He's in the Boy Scouts and into outdoors guns and all that stuff. And then we're talking, and he, and he said, well, what should you run into? I said, how about a Muslim terrorist, you know? I said, now you got a plot, you know? <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> that could never happen. Well, I probably have a better chance of getting the Martian yeah. by, uh, yeah. you know, certain publishers. <laughs> Muslim terrorists, so. But I've watched Homeland. I know about this, you know. So, and then that's when we started. So he's my collaborator on this. Okay, All and right. I, I do it in between stuff. It's taken a couple of years, but we're literally a week away from finishing it. Are we? Uh, do we have a title yet? Is it still under the wraps? The title is called uh, the Hunt. The Hunt. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, Lloyd and I can come up with maybe a couple titles. <laughs> yeah, we can. It yeah. sounds just like that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, the rhyme. Where do you see? Where do you see? The, okay, in your mind's eye. Yeah. The hunt is out there somewhere. Right. Who's buying it? Where is it sold? What's it look like? Well, it's a, in the action-adventure Brad Thor, James Patterson, Nelson DeMille uh, mode, you know? Okay. Will you be talking about this on C-SPAN? Uh, I, I, ideally. No, no, C-SPAN's only book. It's fiction, non-fiction, rather. Mm -hmm. Book TV. But I did, I, had, I, did do one, um, I did do one novel earlier. The first book I had published was a novel. Uh -huh. And I was shocked that uh, I, I was able to find the publisher. Uh, and then, you know, at first I, was, I did it just as an exercise to see if I could write a book. I hadn't written any nonfiction books at that point. This was about 1999. But the internet was just coming online and it was really very helpful, I saw. And this was an action adventure, you know, romance, you know, political saga, mm -hmm. vaguely futuristic. And then I found the publisher and then the book sold pretty well, you know. So, and once you have a book... And this is a word to the wise. Yeah. It's a whole lot easier to get book number two. I'll bet, yeah. Uh, to get that first book is the hard part. So, but for and, a lot of people, it's to get that book number two, and then they have no ideas for it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Same the opportunity. Right, they're writing their life story. <laughs> I was a one-book writer. <laughs> if I got my second book, I would hire Bill Ayers to write it. You know, I've reached out to Bill and uh, see if we could get a conversation started, you know, but... Uh, he's uh, hasn't been responsive. Jack, one one piece of advice: if he invites you to dinner, don't go. <laughs> <laughs> I know he invited a bunch of people from. Uh, I know Tucker Carlson went, and a few other people did. Andrew Breitbart. Breitbart, right? Gosh, yeah. Well, Tucker's still alive, but Breitbart's not. So. <laughs> I had met Breitbart a few times. He was. Uh, yeah. Uh, very, very nice in guy. Inspiring. Is, is he different than what he looks like? Uh, you know, when I it's odd. Uh, the first time I met him. I was doing a book tour. I wrote a book on California, and I was in, uh, and he was filling in his, his studio in Burbank, and he, and, it, and it, I had a hard time believing that it was the same Andrew Breitbart who would surface a few years later because he was so insecure, because uh, he was doing talk radio and he hadn't done it before, and he mm -hmm. kept saying, "Am mm -hmm. I doing okay? Am I, it's just okay. It's okay." He's yeah. very, you know, all yeah. over the place, yeah. you know, like like you knew him to be. But but then the next time I met him, he was like the king of the king of the media. There you, you know? go. So. Yeah. He was a great guy. I knew Breitbart out in, in L.A. Yeah. He, I was going to a, a cocktail party, and I, he was actually on the radio talking about his, uh, how much he hated school. And I didn't know it was Breitbart, I, but I tuned in because it's like, yeah, another guy like me who every day was prison, you know, that you were in school. Well, he's total ADD, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when I got there, he was there drinking beers, and I was like, I just heard you on the radio. Oh, yeah, yeah, and we commiserated about <laughs> school, and uh, that's where I got to know him, but what a great guy. Well, you know, I, I work a lot with James O'Keefe of Project Veritas, and, oh, yeah. and here's an example of someone, you know, for young audiences who created his own enterprise. He did know? indeed. 
And, but his, his mentor was uh, Andrew Breitbart, and mm -hmm. he spent a lot of time with Breitbart. has some great Breitbart stories. And Breitbart's another guy who created a, a total monster enterprise out of nothing. And that's why I would say to, to young people, forget about journalism school, forget about you know, the, the, the conventional ways of finding your, getting a job with the Kansas City Star or whatever. I would say just explore the internet, find your niche and go for it. You know, and this is marketing as well. I've, I know guys, you know, who created whole monster marketing niches, you know, just, mm -hmm. just working out of their home or out of, mm -hmm. out of the roastery or someplace, yeah, you know? Yeah. And if you're young, especially, and you have the opportunity, you're still living in your mother's basement or whatever, and you got time, you don't need the overhead, you can uh, explore. This take thing. risks. Yeah, take risks. A mother with Wi-Fi is all you need. <laughs> <laughs> He'll let you use it, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Jack, it's great to see you, and thank you for joining us. No, this really is a nice little environment here. Thanks for having me. I hope I didn't yeah, shock or offend any of the I'm people sitting around. Well, here, I'm right? sure you did. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you will not light up a cigar, though. Well, I, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, I just I don't that. have much experience in it, you know. Well, we can help you, Dick. It's like, uh, it's like Loy, I just told Loy, you know, he gave me a cigar here a couple of weeks ago, and I just had it a couple of nights ago, and I used scissors to cut the end of it off. Mm -hmm. That's just uh, not the way you do it, I understand. Well, see, and that's part of the problem. Yeah. I, I'm such a, a virgin in this field, mm -hmm. I would yeah. be afraid I'd be doing it wrong. Yeah, you don't want to do you know it wrong. You know you want to do it like, you know, not smoke the wrong end Especially here in the cigar lounge. Yeah, and then I don't know whether I'm supposed yeah. to inhale or not. You know? <laughs> well, you know what? You can learn quickly. Dick... Like he said, I just showed him how to cut it, mm -hmm. and now he's got that cigar hanging out of the corner of his mouth, yeah. which he had <laughs> while he was drinking his coffee. Yeah, so, yeah that's good. Yeah, now he's you. just like a cartoon character with the cigar. Yeah. It's part of his. What's uh, this persona. brown on my knuckles? Well, I, I went the first. The only time I went downhill skiing, I did it without any lessons and late at night. But, but I, I, no matter how badly I do with the cigar, I can't be that, like, that, right. that, that dangerous. You know, so. <laughs> right. All right, well, turn let's fire green. one up. Let's <laughs> get one up. Thank you, Jack, for being with well, us. Well, thank you for having me. Best of luck show. to you. A lot of fun. Jack Cash, thank you. Oh, uh, hang on a minute. Let me get this. Hello. Hey, Dick, it's Tony Labruzzo, second base coach for the Kansas City Royals. Tony, Tony, Tony. How's it going, Dick? Well, I'm doing good, but the Royals are having a tough season. Yeah, I know. It's been really tough. You know, the crowds are down. The yeah, attendance is awful. I, I, I don't know. Nobody wants to. Well, the weather hadn't been that good. But yeah, that's true. Same well, struggling. I mean, we can't get it together. I, you know, I got, I got some ideas, though. I think All right, good. what do you think we can do to get the crowd out there through a losing season? Well, you know, we got that uh, past the outfield. There's a little uh, grassy area. I thought maybe we could put some goats out there. Uh, I know it's a crazy idea, but I thought, uh, uh, you know, maybe we'd get a mule or something like that. To, oh. You know, it's a it's a love. Okay. I don't know. And then yeah. maybe we could uh, go down here to the um, home plate. Yeah. We dig out a thing in home plate underneath. We put a rabbit in there. And, uh, you know, during the, uh, the seventh inning stretch or something, the rabbit comes out of the ground. And, uh, you know, it hands uh, new balls to the umpire. I, I don't know. I, to Tony, I think that'd be cool. You know, maybe that'll wait, get some uh, uh, Tony, wait a minute. All that stuff's been done before. What are you, what are you talking about? That what was you? back in the Kansas City Athletics area at the old municipal stadium. No, you kidding me? Yeah. That's where I. Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, 
Who, who, in, the, who in the hell came up with that idea? Uh, that it was Charlie Finley. Yes. Uh huh. Where do we find that guy? We need him. You'd probably have to dig into the ground now to find him. Like the rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tony. Good luck on second base. See you out there. Well, the sound of the singing jingle, it means it's time to say goodbye for now, Lloyd. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. And thanks to Rick Tamlin, who played the part of Rock Rupture so many years ago. Come on back to Dick and Lloyd's Media and Marketing Mayhem. Do it. Woohoo! You might love it. You might hate it. It's my favorite freaking show. <laughs> <laughs>